You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The Catholic Church began to experience the nature of modernity essentially, I think, in the 16th century. And again, two factors in particular, one being the age of exploration and the other being the Protestant Reformation. Now, it happened that the first European countries out of the starting block, so far as world exploration is concerned, were Spain and Portugal which remained devoutly Catholic countries even after the Reformation. And as a matter of fact, the Protestant countries of Europe, for whatever reason, were a little bit slow in getting in on the race for world empire. And the discovery of the world beyond Europe had an enormous effect on the church because for the first time in a thousand years, they found themselves confronted with societies of people who had never heard of Christ and who had never been exposed to the gospel. And the Catholics believed implicitly in the words of Jesus, go forth and make converts of all nations. There were to be no exceptions to that. The first place where they began to do this was in what we call Latin America. Right off the bat that raised some very significant questions. There were people who asked the question, well, are these Indians, as Columbus called them, human beings, or are they creatures of some subhuman character? The answer to that question was of momentous consequences because if they were subhuman, then they could not be baptized and join the church. But from the very beginning, there were theologians who quite passionately and ardently argued the case that the Indians were human beings like everyone else and that they too should receive the message of the gospel. And quite early on, the Pope and other church authorities came down on the side of that. Now, by the end of the 16th century, there were Catholic missionaries, especially Jesuits, who were going into a rather different kind of a situation. Whereas in Latin America, they were exposed to masses of people who were on the whole rather poor and uneducated. In places like China and Japan and to some extent India, the Jesuit missionaries found themselves in highly sophisticated civilizations with very learned people, with very ancient religious and cultural traditions, and where the challenges of conversion were quite different. In the East, the Jesuit missionaries, after a certain amount of disagreement in the beginning, embrace a strategy of saying that we ought to incarnate the faith into these cultures in every way we can, which does not change the nature of the faith. So we as priests will wear Eastern dress, we will build churches in Eastern style, and so forth still centuries away before anybody would talk about having the liturgy and the vernacular. It was still going to be in Latin, but nonetheless. They were also looking for similarities and dissimilarities between 
European Christianity and the native cultures. It's a very complex story, but to simplify it as much as possible, the missionaries thought that Buddhism and Hinduism were rival religions. They were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. They were pagan. It was exactly the sort of thing that Jesus had come to overcome, to lead people to the truth. On the other hand, the Jesuit missionaries argued the philosophy of Confucius was just that. It was a philosophy. It was not a religion. And they thought that the philosophy of Confucius, insofar as it gave people moral obligations and moral rules and principles, was quite harmonious with Christianity. And there was no reason why a good Confucian couldn't be a good Christian, and why the teachings of Christianity might not be expressed sometimes in Confucian terminology. And one of the great Jesuit missionaries who were doing this around 1600, his name was Matteo Ricci, was using the Confucian expression, the Lord of heaven, to refer to the Christian God. And he de-emphasized those things about Christianity which might have been jarring to the Confucians. For example, Jesus' crucifixion and emphasized instead the idea that we all have similar attitudes about the great God who rules over the universe. This is the first instance, or at least the first instance in a very long time, of what will be called in our own time enculturation of the gospel. To what extent can we change the form and expressions of Christianity to make it more intelligible and acceptable to people in other cultures besides Europe. It's a very difficult, tricky, and in many ways treacherous enterprise. It requires both a very firm grasp on what is of the heart of the faith and what cannot be compromised and a very good sense of when something is being compromised. And it also requires a very keen, subtle, and thorough knowledge of both cultures. The culture from which you're coming and the culture to which you are going. Uh, St. Francis Xavier, the early Jesuit missionary in Japan, found out to his horror that he had a translator who didn't know Japanese very well and that the word that this man was using for God when Francis Xavier was preaching was a word that actually meant the big lie. And people would be laughing and looking incredulous and Francis Xavier couldn't figure out why. It's a very simple example of the dangers of enculturation, how you have to be extremely knowledgeable about what you're doing. The encounter with other cultures necessarily had a somewhat relativizing effect about your own culture. Just as if you have numerous competing voices in the area of religion, all of whom claim that they know the truth, therefore it makes it harder to say, well, one has the truth and all the rest of them are wrong. So also, if you realize that your culture is one of many in the world, 
that people in other parts of the world believe and do things quite differently from you, you cannot help but wonder in the back of your mind, well, maybe my own point of view, maybe the point of view of my culture is, is a very limited one, a very restricted one, what we tend to call today cultural relativism. Now, there weren't very many people in the early modern period, many Europeans who were cultural relativists. If nothing else, the Europeans tended to have a sense of themselves as a superior culture. And after all, we have the true religion and these other religions are false. But at the same time, the Jesuits in particular were honest enough to see that these other cultures couldn't simply be brushed aside as insignificant that there was in fact something very substantial here, that it was a very ancient tradition, that it was very rich in many ways, that it represented some very deep thinking on the part of various individuals and could not simply be brushed aside. And they began translating Buddhist texts, Hindu texts, Confucian texts into European languages so Europeans could study them, even as they were translating Christian texts into these other languages. And so people in the West increasingly began studying the writings of other cultures. And as I say, that had a tendency to put their own culture into a somewhat relativistic perspective. Okay. And this is very important in the Enlightenment where you have people saying, well, look, you know, over there in Tahiti, Courting customs is very different than they are here in Europe, and our own family life and so on is not necessarily normative for all human beings. That was one aspect of the Enlightenment. Now, it's also interesting that cultural relativism of this nature seems to arise primarily in the West itself, and that one of the characteristics of the modern West is precisely a growing tendency towards cultural relativism, which is particularly strong right now. This is paradoxical in a way because the West went out and conquered much of the world, said it was superior to the rest of the world, but in certain respects, it also allowed itself to recognize that Western beliefs were not necessarily final. That same idea doesn't really actually seem to exist in non-Western cultures. Now, the second thing, of course, the second way in which the Catholic Church experienced modernity in the 16th century was the traumatic experience of the Protestant Reformation. When uh, Martin Luther first became embroiled in the controversy in 15, 17, 18, the Pope dismissed the whole thing, said it was a monkish quarrel. And I think that any intelligent person at that time would have said, the Catholic Church is such a huge, ancient, and powerful institution that any number of monks can go out there and chip away at it with their hammers and nothing much is going to happen. And yet suddenly, within a matter of a few years, there appeared to be cracks everywhere and the church seems to be fragmenting. It took the church about 20 years to begin to get its act together. For about 20 years, Protestantism spread often enough because it didn't even encounter a great deal of resistance. And there was a good deal of confusion in which some local religious leader would arise, we would call him a Protestant, and who would begin interpreting, this is what the gospel's really all about. 
and there would be no priest or anyone else around who could debate him or could attempt to refute him. Only beginning about 1536, when the Pope appoints a kind of a blue ribbon committee of cardinals, do we begin to see the church starting to rise up out of this stance of passivity and to go, as it were, on the offensive against Protestantism. The name that is usually given to this, of course, is the Counter-Reformation. And modern scholars have pointed out the inadequacy of that term insofar as it implies that what was going on here was simply a reaction to Protestantism. Uh, the older view of the Counter-Reformation is that the church found itself on the ropes being attacked by the Protestants, and so it gradually began to fight back. So one of the weaknesses of that view, of course, as with any reactionary position, is you're allowing yourself to be defined, as it were, by your enemy. And you lose certain important things in your own tradition simply because they don't seem relevant at the present time because they're not being attacked. So the term Catholic Reformation has been also coined to note the fact that the seeds of Catholic reform in fact predate Martin Luther. In the 14th and 15th centuries there are any number of renewal movements seeking to rekindle a deeper piety, seeking to go back to in some ways a simpler and more authentic faith. There are some new religious orders founded, there are some attempts made to reform old religious orders. And so it isn't just a case of the church turning around in reaction to Protestantism. But it's really both things. And so both terms, Counter-Reformation and Catholic Reformation, can be used. Now the great instrument of the Counter-Reformation is of course the Council of Trent, which meets on and off between 1545 and 1563. And the Council of Trent essentially has a kind of double agenda, which could be seen as Counter-Reformation and Catholic Reformation. On the one hand, it is essential to refute the Protestants. It is essential to determine how the Protestants are wrong, where they're wrong, to define that as carefully as possible, to alert people to it, instruct them in it, and to really sharpen or exaggerate even the differences between Catholics and Protestants, lest people fall into the error of thinking that Protestant teachings are true. Then the other dimension of it is the recognition that there are lots of problems in the church itself that there is a great deal of immorality, for example, among the clergy, a great deal of laxness, a great deal of worldliness. The people are not terribly well instructed, and so forth. And so that leads to things like the enactment of the seminary system, the first catechisms. With the Jesuit order, we begin to get things like the institution of the retreat, which in a way brings to laymen in the world the same kind of spiritual formation that was given to monks in monasteries. We see a vastly renewed emphasis on Catholic education at all levels. And the Catholic Reformation is, among other things, an attempt to rekindle a vibrant and vital popular Catholicism.
So that even in countries where Protestantism for all practical purposes doesn't exist, we see a tremendous emphasis on preaching, on frequent reception of the sacraments, going to confession, on getting spiritual advice from competent people, on devotions of one sort or another, on spiritual reading, on pious organizations like sodalities, and an attempt to form people in an authentically Catholic way, so they lead authentically Catholic lives. And that campaign over a period of a century or more is remarkably successful. There have been regional studies done, for example, that will show that after the preachings of the Counter-Reformation started at a certain date, for example, maybe by some Jesuits coming in, you can actually chart a sharp decline in the number of illegitimate births, for example, so that there's less fornication going on and people are more respectful of marriage and of the necessity of living a good Christian life. And whole areas of Europe become now famous for their piety, which often perhaps had not been there before. Uh, we tend to think, for example, of Ireland as an intensely Catholic country, and it has always been a Catholic country, but it has been argued with some degree of truth that it wasn't until the Counter-Reformation came to Ireland rather late, that is to say in the 19th century, that Ireland became the intensely Catholic and pious kind of society that we think of it as being. So in a way, again, the Counter-Reformation, Catholic Reformation is on two fronts. The renewal of the church itself, it kindled spirituality, very positive in nature, and at the same time, an attack upon the Protestant errors. And this produces what is called sometimes, and usually disparagingly, the fortress mentality. It is argued that the church comes out of the Reformation with a sense of its being beleaguered. It raises the drawbridge. It rallies the troops around. It inculcates in people a strong sense of conflict and military metaphors, as in the Society of Jesus with Ignatius Loyola, going forth to fight for Christ in the world. The famous meditation of Ignatius Loyola, where you imagine yourself seeing a field where the armies of Christ and the armies of Satan are on opposite sides and you have to choose which army you are going to fight with, and there's no opportunity here to remain neutral. Even if you are not fighting against the errors of Protestantism, you are fighting against the world, you are fighting against the devil, you are fighting against the temptations which have always been present for any sincere Christian. Then, as time goes on, the fortress mentality, if we can call it that, is reinforced by some of the other historical episodes which we talked about in the first lecture, and notably the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was perceived quite correctly as a frontal attack on the church. Voltaire's famous comment, his fa famous cry really, his slogan, crush the infamous thing, referring to the church. The church the enemy of progress, the church the enemy of the human race, the church the enemy of enlightenment, and then all of that quite vividly carried out in the violence of the French Revolution. And the French Revolution influenced not just France, but it was exported to other countries, and so the church found itself persecuted in a number of different places. 
And when Europe began to recover from that period in 1815, the church had strongly reinforced the, for it the fortress mentality, if we want to call it that. The world is unfriendly. The world is hostile. The world seeks to destroy us. We must be on our guard. And that's not just some idle notion in a book, but it is the lesson which history itself has shown us. So uh, the beginning of the 19th century, we see the church kind of in a way, both in an optimistic and a pessimistic mode. Pessimistic for the reasons we've been talking about, the attacks on the church, and the sense that these are not isolated incidents, but they will recur. And a good Catholic must be vigilant. And at the same time, optimistic because there's an enormous revival of the church after 1815, after the persecution of the revolutionary period is over. Statistically, more and more people going to church, growth of religious orders, new religious orders being founded. One of the most flourishing periods in the history of the church, the first half of the 19th century. Then in the second half, more signs perhaps of a certain decline, albeit not a dramatic decline. The French Revolution leaves permanent scars, especially on France itself, to a lesser extent other places. And the French Revolution is quite important to our specific subject here of the modernist heresy because the heart of modernism is in France, as we'll see, and one cannot understand that environment without understanding the legacy of the French Revolution. It is a legacy of what we perhaps can call best polarization, as we use the word. Frenchmen came out of the revolution with the feeling that you have to take sides. Either the revolution was a good thing because it brought with it freedom, emancipation from old tyrannies, the beginnings of the modern world, in which case the attack on the church was possibly necessary, and if not absolutely necessary, it was at least tolerable as the price which had to be paid. And on the other hand, the sense that the French Revolution was really a kind of a sacrilege, that it was an attack upon God, it was an attack upon the church, it was an attack upon Christianity itself, and it represented, therefore, something quite evil. And for a long time, psychologically in France, it was rather difficult to try to remain independent of both of those rather extreme positions. There were people who did try to do it, and there were people who did do it with some degree of success. But for example, through much of the 19th century, to be a devout Catholic in France often meant that you were a monarchist. That is, you believed that the political system ordained by God was kingship, and that France had done something very evil when it had gotten rid of its kings, and that if you were a good Catholic, you should, in fact, believe that. Now, in the early 1880s, Pope Leo XIII decided that this was a rather sterile and self-defeating policy, and he made efforts to encourage French Catholics to enter into some kind of at least a halfway 
rapprochement with the secular Republican government in France. And he was successful to some degree, but as it turned out, neither the government on the one hand, nor probably most of the Catholics on the other, were terribly enthusiastic about this project. And it was left for the future to be worked out. In the early 19th century, the word liberalism begins to enter into the vocabulary of intellectuals. Now, prior to the early 19th century, the word liberal, which of course comes from the Latin word meaning free, was more or less a synonym for generous. If you said a man was liberal, you meant that he was willing to help people who were in need, spent money lavishly, maybe he was even spending it on himself, but he was a liberal spender. It might mean someone who was kind of large-hearted, he would be sympathetic to somebody who came to him in trouble. But it didn't have a political meaning. But after 1815, it begins to take on a political meaning. A liberal is someone who wants to be freed from tyrannies, from old-fashioned tyrannies. What are those tyrannies? Well, they are primarily the monarchy, the aristocracy, and the church. The old systems in which there was, you were born into a particular nation, you were expected to obey the king, you had to defer to the aristocracy because you were born into a social class and you pretty much stayed there. And there was an official church and you would be expected to belong to that church and to practice your religion as a member of that church. And depending on what country you were in and what time it was, you could get persecuted for not doing so. These kinds of liberals were often, in terms of their own principles, hypocritical because they would proclaim freedom, liberty as a good thing, but then they would impose restrictions on the churches, for example. And this came to a head in France in 1905 when they closed down all the Catholic schools, expelled some of the Catholic religious orders. They really wanted to destroy the influence of the Catholic Church in France. Now, again, this is significant because it's at the exact moment that the modernist crisis in theology is going on in France. And as I say, it isn't irrelevant to what's going on, as we will see later on. In 1864, Pope Pius IX, who is now venerated as Blessed Pius IX, issued a famous document called the Syllabus of Errors. It's often quoted and cited in Catholic circles, and especially in liberal Catholic circles, and it is castigated and denounced. But it occurred to me some years ago that it must be one of the great unread documents of history because I discovered that it was not easy to find an English translation, and that a lot of the people who were citing it all the time or referring to it probably didn't actually read it. Now, the Syllabus of Errors was a very blunt document denouncing and condemning what the Pope identified as a whole series of errors. And it's not directly relevant to our purposes to enumerate what they all were, but he does say, for example, in one place that he condemns the idea that it is the duty of the Roman Pontiff to accommodate himself to the modern world. He condemns that. Well, it seems to me, and this has often been ridiculed and so on, it seems to me that if one thinks about it, it's a perfectly sensible principle. 
who would ever want to be under the obligation to accommodate themselves to the modern world? Surely we must approach the modern world with a spirit of balanced criticism in the same way we approach everything else. And that I think Pius IX had identified an aspect of modernism, which I spoke of in my previous lecture, the uncritical embrace of change, the uncritical embrace of modernity is always necessarily better than what went before. Now, Pius IX is also castigated often because in the syllabus of errors he condemns liberalism. But it's been pointed out, and I think correctly so, that he undoubtedly had in mind continental liberalism as he knew it, the liberalism of France, the liberalism of Italy, the people who took away the papal states in 1870 and incorporated them into New Italy and who then began imposing restrictions on the church were calling themselves liberals. The anti-clericals in France who closed down the parochial schools and expelled the religious orders called themselves liberals. Pius IX probably did not have much familiarity with American liberalism which might be seen as a more benign form of liberalism, one which the church could accept without any trouble, as in fact most American Catholics did. But on the continent of Europe, and of course the tendency was always for the Vatican to look primarily at Europe as the center of the church, on the continent of Europe, liberalism was, I think, understandably viewed with a considerable degree of suspicion. Now, during the 19th century, we have a number of other isms that develop. The 19th century invents the word, the, the suffix ism, and we have all kinds of isms. There is communism, for example, although this doesn't begin to attract too much attention until the later part of the century. There's nationalism, in which you have almost a religious veneration for your own nation and in which there are attempts made to actually substitute loyalty to one's nation in place of loyalty to religion. And the popes and other religious leaders are very cool and suspicious of nationalism as really a kind of an idolatry in which loyalty to your nation supersedes everything else. There is materialism, the philosophical claim that the only thing that is real is what can be felt and touched and seen, that anything beyond that is an illusion. And certainly there is no survival after death. When you're dead, you're dead. And there had not been very many atheists prior to the 19th century because people like Voltaire thought that atheism was irrational. You had to think that there was a superior intellect who had planned and created the universe. But in the 19th century, you begin to get a growing number, a small minority perhaps, but a growing number of people who are actually denying the existence of God, and not only denying the existence of God, but saying that belief in God is actually a bad thing, and that atheism is to be preferred. So again, a growing atmosphere in the 19th century that while religion in one sense is flourishing, in another sense there are far more threats, dangers, antagonisms, enemies, than there had ever been before. And these were not dreams. These were not paranoid fantasies. These were realities. Somewhat paradoxically, perhaps, or even worse, we find that by about 1870, there are some people who are calling themselves liberal Catholics. 
And this is a term which continues in use down to the present time. And it is a term which is in fact quite slippery, as the term liberalism itself is quite slippery. Now it's probably significant that for the most part those who called themselves liberal Catholics were Englishmen. Now of course the Catholics were a rather small minority in England, but they did have some fairly prominent individuals associated with the church. And the reason why it's probably significant that some of them began to use the word liberal is because in the Anglo-Saxon countries, you could see liberalism as essentially a benign thing, not hostile to the church. Catholics after 1828 in England basically had unlimited religious freedom. Catholics in the United States had unlimited religious freedom. The attacks on the church that were taking place in France and Italy and other places were not taking place in the Anglo-Saxon countries. Now what did it mean to be a liberal Catholic? Well on one level it had a kind of a political meaning. The Papal States, as I said, were seized by the new nation of Italy in 1870. The Pope obviously regarded that as a terrible injustice. Perhaps in retrospect there can be persuasive arguments made as to why it was good for the Pope to relinquish the Papal States, why he should cease to be a territorial prince, because among other things historically that had meant that the papacy was dragged into all sorts of bitter quarrels, international quarrels, which compromised it in terms of its religious mission. But at the same time it would be highly unrealistic to think that the church could stand by with equanimity and watch this territory taken away from it and not feel that there was some terrible injustice here. So for a lot of Catholics the loss of the Papal States was a big grievance and they thought that so long as the Papal States remained out of the Pope's hands, the church was suffering unjustly. Certainly the Pope himself felt that way. The Popes after 1870 made themselves, as it was called, the prisoners of the Vatican. They would not come out of the Vatican, not until John the 23rd in 1958. So in some ways what a liberal Catholic was, was a person who said, we ought to accept the loss of the Papal States. We ought to accept the fact that the popes are now relinquishing any claim to temporal or political authority. They become spiritual authorities only, and that's good for the church. That was a tenable position, of course, but it also was a position which naturally the popes looked upon with some degree of suspicion and tended to see it as an instance of disloyalty. But the liberal Catholicism also carried over into religious and theological matters as well. And this is where the most severe problems will come. In 1870, 69 and 70, the First Vatican Council met under the presidency of Pius IX. And its most famous decree was of course the decree on papal infallibility. That when the Pope speaks solemnly defining a matter of faith or morals that his teaching is true. Now theologians of course have discussed endlessly how frequently does that happen, uh, what exactly does it constitute, and so on and so forth, but the principle itself was clearly laid down. There was some opposition to this at the First Vatican Council. 
a lot of the opposition was from people who thought that it was inopportune. They were called inopportunists. The teaching may be true, but now's not the time to say it because the papacy is already kind of under attack and this looks like a sort of a active aggression on the Pope's part to inflate his authority. But there were also some who didn't believe it. There were even some who in fact left the church when it was over. There was a notable German theologian, Ignaz Dollinger, considered one of the leading theologians of the day, who rejected the doctrine of papal infallibility and in fact separated himself from the church afterwards. He didn't really have much of a following in the sense of people who followed him out of the church, but he was there as a kind of an example or an influence over those Catholics who were dissatisfied with the direction in which the church was going and who thought that Dollinger had been very courageous and honest in the stance in which he took and who thought that the only thing wrong with what Dollinger had done was the fact that he had thereby rendered himself impotent and they were going to stay in the church hoping to have some influence. Perhaps the leading liberal Catholic in the sense of the one who called himself this was the Englishman um, who goes by his title almost always Lord Acton. Lord Acton was a noted historian. He didn't publish a lot of actual history, but he was a high-level kind of journalist, and Acton made himself the head of the liberal Catholic movement in England with disciples in other countries. And Acton was one of those who simply thought the doctrine of papal infallibility was wrong. He didn't leave the church, he stayed in, but he simply thought it was wrong and said so. Although in the wake of the definition of Vatican I, he had to withdraw more and more from church controversies. The fact that he was a layman probably meant that he escaped any sort of condemnation for heresy. Then there is the fascinating and perennially controversial figure of John Henry Newman. There had been, of course, in the 1830s and 40s, the Oxford movement within the Church of England, in which young men in particular at the University of Oxford, who were Anglicans, most of them Anglican priests, were attracted to the Catholic elements of their tradition which they thought had been lost. And they were trying, if you will, to re-Catholicize the Church of England, what is sometimes called Anglo-Catholicism. Some of them remained in the Church of England and succeeded fairly well. Others, like Newman, concluded finally that this was a brick wall, that they were claiming things for the Church of England which weren't true. So Newman, in the middle of the 1840s, becomes a Catholic. He becomes a priest. He joins a religious community called the Oratory. And he continues to write. Newman was one of those who considered the doctrine, the definition of papal infallibility to be inopportune, but he did submit to the definition after it was made. Newman is in fact, well, he's known for many of his writings, but in some ways the most important of his works, especially for our purposes, is an essay called On the Development of Doctrine, Essay on the Development of Doctrine. And Newman's position here was that if one goes back to Scripture in the New Testament, you obviously don't find fully laid out the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. 
The word doesn't appear in the New Testament. The idea of the seven sacraments, or even a blunt, straightforward, straight-out statement, Jesus Christ is God. These positions, these doctrines come into existence later. The church proclaims them and states that they are authoritative. So what fascinated Newman was the question of how this seeming change could take place, the development of doctrine. Certain things don't seem to be recognized or acknowledged until you receive, reach a certain point in history. Well, Newman was firm on the principle that there can be no real innovation in matters of faith. There is what the church calls the deposit of faith, which is complete with the Holy Scriptures. So you can't explain the development of doctrine by saying, well, new ideas, new teachings. And he uses something like an analogy from biology, from the acorn that becomes the oak tree, or the baby who becomes a mature man. And he says that while in many ways the development may seem to depart rather dramatically from the origins, from the tiny little origins to this great tree or this fully developed man, that in fact we know it's the same being. And we know that the seeds of it were always there. And we know that the later development is an authentic unfolding of what has been there since the beginning. And so Newman lays this down as the criterion for the development of doctrine. Now because of that fact that he talks so much about it, he has sometimes been claimed by those people who call themselves liberal Catholics. But it's worth noting that one, as I've often said, Newman thought the word liberal had four letters in it. He always uses it as a term of opprobrium. And what he meant by liberalism in religion was your own point of view that my beliefs are determined by what I think is right. Individual judgment, private judgment, personal judgment. Whereas authentic religion, he says, involves submitting yourself to the Word of God as the Word of God is authoritatively interpreted for you by the church. And so Newman in the long run is far from being a liberal, at least in the more radical sense of that term although, as I say, he's sometimes been called a, a liberal. Now, the liberals, as I say, were uneasy with the definition of papal infallibility. Partly, they just thought it wasn't there. They thought, well, you can't interpret thou art Peter in that way. But others, because they said, well, it's going to have a very bad effect. It's going to make it look like we're trying to uh, exalt the pope's authority. It'll make people more suspicious than ever of Catholics. But more generally, the Catholic liberals like Acton were people who thought that in some way or another, the church has to make some attempt to accommodate itself to the modern world. And for Acton, the key issue was freedom in terms of his liberalism. He believed that the great achievement of the modern world was the discovery of freedom, the enshrinement of freedom in the political institutions, the valuing of freedom. And the history of the church with the Inquisition and things of that nature were to him a terrible embarrassment. And he thought that the great error of the papacy, the great error of the modern church, was it sort of dragging its feet in this matter. And it wasn't only just political freedom, but also intellectual freedom. That we should be free to speculate, to let our minds wander over the great richness of human thought. 
1880, Pope Leo XIII also issued an important document called Eterni Patris, the Eternal Father, in which he declared that St. Thomas Aquinas was the preeminent Catholic theologian and that his teachings were to be followed in all seminaries and all other Catholic institutions of learning. He was to be given pride of place. Now this would create uh, very serious problems for the people whom we call modernists and it caused grave misgivings for some of those who called themselves liberals who wanted to explore some of the contemporary schools of thought to see how the faith might be reconciled with those. At the beginning of the 19th century there had been a German Protestant theologian named Friedrich Schleiermacher who had written a book which was addressed to what he called the cultured despisers of Christianity. And the very phrase, the cultured despisers of Christianity, quite obviously indicated a certain sense of inferiority. Why do these highly educated people not respect us? Why do these highly educated people not take us seriously? He was thinking here primarily of the spirit of the Enlightenment again, the skeptics, those who said Christianity was superstitious, false. But if we show them, Schleiermacher said, that we too are enlightened, that we too are highly intelligent, that we can come to terms with the best of modern thought, that we're not bogged down in a pre-modern worldview, then they will respect us and there will be a new revitalization of Christianity taking place as the skeptical intellectuals once again can affirm Christianity. This is the beginnings of what's usually called liberal Protestantism. And liberal Protestantism is an agenda of progressively discarding certain beliefs or doctrines that are considered to be no longer credible. For example, most miracles is no longer being credible in order to enable the modern doubter to respect the faith. Now, the liberal Catholics like Acton were not going nearly as far as someone like Schleiermacher was prepared to do but they were not unaware of the existence of liberal Protestantism. Newman himself thought one of his great missions in life was to fight against liberalism and in religion, including liberal Protestantism. But there were others, and he had associations with some of them, like Acton, who tended to move in the other direction. However, it also, on the part of the liberal Catholics, tended to be somewhat vague, so that the definition of liberal Catholicism in the late 19th century is a fairly elusive kind of definition. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.